Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing agency and identity in adulthood. A question came in, and I just want to read it to you, and then I'll share. After listening to an episode today where you talked about being 11 and babysitting, how proud and happy it made you, I started thinking back to my own childhood. I was the eldest of five girls. I had so much responsibility from such a young age. Two of my sisters used to call me their second mom. It fills me with happiness and joy knowing that I was able to do that. So my question is, now that I'm 36 years old, how do I know if I really like caregiving because it's in my nature or because it was forced upon me and grew to like it because what it brought me, seeing another person satisfied and cared for because of me felt good? Thank you, Megan, for this question. I didn't tell you yet that I'm turning it into an episode, so thank you for the inspiration. And it's such a great question, and it's one that doesn't have a very satisfying answer, but it's one as trauma survivors, as childhood dysfunction and chaos survivors, that deep, insightful people will most definitely ask themselves along their healing journey. So let me see if I can break this down and put words to this experience. First, I want to offer you my definition of the difference between adulthood and childhood, between adult and child. Now, typically, we just sit at the surface of adulthood and childhood, right? Our society says, well, we hit 18 or we hit 21, and that's what makes us an adult. If you've been following me for a while and hearing me talk about inner child work, when we do that work, we very much start to look at the world differently, and we can see other people's wounded children at the helm. It's almost spooky for survivors sometimes to look out at the world and realize, oh, wow, so many inner children that are wounded are at the helm playing adult. So for my definition of adulthood, it's not about age. It's more about maturity we don't have great metrics for measuring maturity. So the biggest difference to me between being that child that I was and being the adult I am now is that I have agency. Now, I have agency as an adult and you have agency as an adult. 
agency that we did not have as a child because our parents, no matter how capable or incapable, mature or immature, healthy or unhealthy, the adults had agency over the children. Even if they were neglectful, that was the agency that they were exerting over that child or those children. Having agency means having a sense of control over one's own life. It's the power that we possess to grow into change, to grow into our adultness, to make choices in ways that we just didn't have the power to make choices as a child. Part of agency is evolving to choose our own thoughts, to choose our own behaviors, to choose our own values, and really to change what we want to change from our family system. And even coming from a very dysfunctional family system, there may be very valuable things that we never, ever want to change. My relationship to food and feeding people and how my chosen family feels a lot like those childhood gatherings that my grandmother would do for the holidays and bring the entire family together in beautiful tradition. I don't ever want to lose that. I don't ever want to let that go. A sense of agency helps us own our bounceability, our resiliency. This is our personal adult power. And to me, it is this very agency that is the difference between child and adult. When I first decided to be a counselor in a very conscious way, my first vision of that was that I would work with children. I'm great with children. I love children. I very much understand and remember how children think and how hungry they are for answers, especially smart, intuitive, curious children. The very first child when I was a student counselor, when I was still in college under supervision, very much told me that I didn't want to work with children that didn't have agency. That very first child was five years old. And that mom was bringing her to me to fix because she thought that child was overweight and overeating. Right in front of me, that mom bent down and said, go talk to Miss Nikki and I'll take you to McDonald's. Right after you talked to her, right after the appointment, and my head nearly exploded. I had a really strong intuition that it was going to be very difficult for me to work with people that didn't have their own agency. So I shifted almost immediately after that moment, knowing that I needed to work with people that were older, people that could make their own life decisions, that could be responsible for themselves. Megan's question, if I add to it and paraphrase it, is how do I know if I really like what I like? Or how do I know if I was conditioned by my experience to like things that I otherwise wouldn't. How do I, from this adult place, trust my own desires to be healthily driven versus people-pleasing or codependently driven? How do I know that I wasn't just conditioned into who I am now? How do I know that I'm authentically being me? Simply asking yourself this question leads us down a road of having more agency over who we are, who we are becoming over ourselves. Who do I like? What do I like? What don't I like? It's not just our family systems that shape us. 
All of our experiences shape us and guide us. Whatever your favorite food is, if you had never been exposed to the experience of that food, you wouldn't know that that's your favorite food. And some other food would pop into your mind if I were to ask you, hey, what's your favorite food? It's a big struggle coming from a dysfunctional family dynamic to figure out who am I versus who was I told to be? Who am I versus who did my trauma tell me to be? Separating and looking at things is a big part of recovery because we face accepting a lot in this life. Whether we're traumatized when we were young or not, we face accepting a whole lot about ourselves, about the world. Acceptance is the final stage of grief, and we don't go through the stages in numerical order. We don't check off the stages of grief and go, okay, I'm done with that first stage of denial. I'm done with the depression part, or I'm done with the anger. I'm done with the bargaining, or I've finally done all the accepting. We ping pong in and out of those different stages. And when a lot of our childhood was stolen by chaos, stolen by dysfunction, we grieve with lots of layers and depth. Part of the grieving process is making meaning out of our pain, making meaning out of what we've lost. This is part of our resiliency strength training. This show is part of my own making meaning. Passing on knowledge gives meaning. Passing on ways to make the human experience easier, make it make more sense, have people have less confusion, more peace. It gives meaning to everything I've been through. It has become a a purpose. And no matter what meaning you make, no matter what purpose you find, This is universal in the human experience. Those of us who have the most resiliency skills in our mental and emotional tool belts, we make meaning. And you will make meaning too if you are committed to healing. Even if you don't know what kind of meaning you're going to make in the future, you will know just as soon as you do. In healing and in recovery, We're dealing with pain. We're dealing with betrayal. I had to deal with the things that happened to me, like being sexually abused, like being abandoned by my biological father. We're figuring out what to do with our memories, our ideas, where to put them, which ideas and memories to hold on to, which to let go of, which to look at differently than we did through our childhood eyes. We work to let go of what no longer or never did serve us. And some of that will be in the realm of, I was told who I was supposed to be. Like I was told all of my life when I had children, when I became a mother, as if it was predetermined that I would be. I had to dig very deep. I had to get to know myself in layers. I had to also meet life where life was. This isn't just me waking up and planning my life. This is a co-creation with the universe, with forces that I don't have full control over. The universe has helped shape me into who I am. 
has helped give me experiences to show me more of who I am. And if I haven't liked ways of being, reactions, dysfunctional patterns that I notice in myself, my adulthood gives me permission to make any changes there that will serve me, my life, my partner, the people that I love. Dysfunction makes internal thoughts and experiencing life a lot like an overpacked, messy closet where so much is crammed in that closet, you can barely get that door shut. And just like a closet, you know, you can't really, really clean out and organize a closet without taking everything out of that closet and considering it, categorizing it. How do I feel about this? How useful is this thing in my life? Is it more useful to keep? Is it more useful to get rid of it and declutter and make space? Do I need this anymore? Did I ever need this? Am I attached to it for a reasonable or logical reason? Am I attached to it in an emotional way that doesn't really serve me? We take everything out of that closet and consider it. And then we reorganize that closet. We do this to our minds and our memories as we grow and heal, if we are to grow and heal. Now, if we're in the anger phase of our grief and our recovery, it's very easy to be angry, to paint sort of everything we might be looking at with an anger brush. That's not because we are some kind of deeply pathologized angry person. It's because we're realizing what abuse has done to our lives the real true impact. Anger is a healthy emotion here. We can certainly do unhealthy things from the prompt of that anger. But getting angry, being angry, processing that anger, and releasing that anger is part of what clears out the pain of any dysfunction that we've endured so that we can have space for peace, space to prosper, Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you, and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. Everything has pros and cons that we experience, really everything. All the stories we've ever heard about lotto winners. I bet most of us out there have heard more horror stories about lottery winners. And lotto winners get the kind of money almost all of us would like to have fall out of the sky and into our laps. But there's a con. It's a lot of money to manage. People treat you differently when that kind of money falls into your lap. It's very difficult for people to manage. 
if they have inner children at the helm. Those inner children can still make them go bankrupt. There are major cons to most lottery-winning stories that hit the news. There are pros and cons to every experience we have. It is part of our healing journey that we get to decide about what we're carrying forward, what we're going to continue to practice in our lives. Now, one of the most difficult things that I could name, I'm going to name it, and it's for my fellow childhood sexual abuse survivors out there. And I can talk about this comfortably and publicly because my younger self did direct work on this very issue. I realized in my grief that what was taken away from me was my own natural sexual awakening and development. And a hard, hard truth that I was so angry at having to accept for a very long time, because it's a truth that I can't change, is that I will never in this lifetime have the opportunity to have my own sexuality develop in a pure and natural way because my dad ruined that for me with his own sick and twisted desires his own pathological lack of empathy or integrity or personal responsibility. He had a responsibility to protect and care for me, not use and objectify my body and being, not violate the trust and intimacy that I gave him by accepting him in the, to the position of father. He made me an object, a sexual object. And that was an introduction to the realm of sex. This is a very hard truth that we do not like to name about what sexual abuse actually is, what it does, what it takes away, what it robs. Now, I've sat with all kinds of questions in this realm in the last 20 years. And when we do such recovery work, we do sit with questions like, is what I like, for this example, is what I like sexually because of me, because of the person I was born to be? Or what was done to me? How much was my sexuality and how I expressed that as a younger person in a different season than I am now when I was single instead of married? How much of that was influenced, not just by my adoptive father's abuse, but how much has been shaped by the abandonment of my biological father? I had been bonded to him and then he disappeared. A different experience than had I never met him or known him. How much of who I am as a human being and then as a sexual being is shaped by the Catholic shame that I experienced loads of growing up before, during, and after my abuse? One of my favorite episodes that we've ever done is on the Patreon. It's from year one or two, where I talk about attending Catholic sex ed with a mixed class of boys and girls in fifth grade. We were 10. The sex teacher seemed to be about 150 years old to us. She frightened us. I still have it burned into my mind how that lady was speaking about sexual things with such disdain and disgust. I don't think that was a neutral experience for me. All of what we experience shapes us. So how much of my sexual development was shaped by knowing that my mother was an unwed mother, pressed to marry my father when she was pregnant with me or give me up. Are there any real answers available to these questions in any kind of way? I don't think so, but I also think we have to ask them.
Because asking ourselves these questions as we recover from such atrocities, such wrongdoing to a child, whether that wrongdoing is intentional or accidental, we must ask ourselves these questions along the path of discovering who we are, maybe because of that trauma and in spite of that trauma. What I think from my personal and professional experience is that a clarity of answer isn't really available here. And that's what abuse robbed me of, the right to know myself without that abuse, the right to know myself without a forced tainting of an experience. So what do we do? Whether we're asking, would I be A or B or C if such and such didn't happen in my life? What do we do with that thought? Who would I be? What would I be like? How far would I be in life? How different would I be? How would I feel if certain things hadn't played out the way they had played out in my life? So here are a few suggestions to work with in this realm. And these are great to ponder to maybe talk through with a therapist or a coach, to journal about, to meditate on. Now, I've benefited greatly, gained a lot of peace and nervous system integration and self-trust by having conversations with my inner child that sound like this. Hi, honey. Hello, sweet girl. I'm so sorry that I don't have the answers that you want and that I can't know for sure. These are really good questions, but I promise you that now, today, I pay deep down attention and I give us full permission to explore what we like and what we don't like, to try new things, to say yes and to say no, to feel out from my heart and from my gut what I like, what I want what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do. I'm committed to getting to know myself and us, all of my parts. I'm paying attention and I'm sensing where I'd like to go, where I don't want to go. I give us full permission to experiment and to change our mind as we explore. We get to love what we love, no matter why we love what we love. We get to dislike what we dislike, no matter why we dislike what we dislike. Now, when it comes to people-pleasing, we can learn to pay attention to our mind and our body, our guts and our hearts. What I've learned by paying such attention is that when I'm helping or pleasing someone and I am embodying my healthy, wise woman, I tend to feel satisfied, recharged, even if the help I gave was tiring, there's a difference between good tired, like a satisfying, accomplished day of hard work, different than being drained. When we help and it really moves the needle forward in someone else's life and our own, I think that feels very, yes, intuitively. It feels very right. It feels like an exhale. It feels warm and satisfying, peaceful. We tend to not overthink when we are in such energies. Now, when I am in my people pleaser, I start to feel drained. I start to feel a bit put upon, and I'm not quite sure in that moment if I feel put upon 
that the other person put upon me or I put upon myself. And I start to overthink, have a thought storm above my head trying to figure out what's going on because I feel off. Something feels off about this help that I'm giving, this pleasing that I am engaging. I might even start to feel resentful, resentful of maybe somebody else asking me, resentful of myself for saying yes when I may be realizing late in the game that I actually wanted to say no or want to now. There are times when it's healthy and right to push through and finish something. There's times when it's exactly right to say that's enough for now and I'm going to pull out. I'm sorry I didn't say no earlier. I'm working on being clearer. When I am people-pleasing, I can sense that my inner child is annoyed with me because I am exerting energy that I don't really have for somebody else's stuff when I don't really have the energy for me. And since I spent a lot of childhood being taught to be a people pleaser, she very much does not like when I am mindlessly in that mode. And I'm so appreciative of that discomfort now because now I understand what that means, how that's there to help me shift and be more authentic and true to myself than those old maladaptive patterns that were really about surviving and not ever being abandoned again. In people-pleasing, we're watching another and we're behaving to please them. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem with people-pleasers is that we have totally missed that we're people too. And because it's our one precious life, we need to be on that list. We need to be high on that list. I'll make the argument. We need to be the first number one on that list. And at first, to our people-pleasing parts, that sounds scary. That sounds like, uh uh-oh, the goal is to not care. I don't want to not care about other people. I don't want to not make other people happy. I like when other people are happy. There's no real problem in getting joy out of helping others, pleasing others. The problem is in doing that to your detriment, doing that in disrespect of your time, your energy, your commitments, your responsibilities, what your body needs, which may be different than the amount of energy you want to have available. In healthiness and boundaries and independence instead of codependence, it's not that we don't please people or help people. It's that we learn to shift to ourselves, essentially learning to witness, to observe ourselves and tend to ourselves. This is also how we get to know our true self. And we don't have to demonize how lovely it feels to please other people. We just need to put ourselves on the list. It's lovely to help others feel loved, seen, heard, special, cared for. Highly sensitive people have an amazing knack, a gift, an ability to hone in and just see somebody. And I mean it when I say it's a gift. I just want you to know that you were always to use that gift with yourself, on yourself, for yourself too, and not give all of it away. If you catch yourself feeling slighted, If you feel yourself struggling or suffering internally while you're tending to others, then this is the people-pleasing to shift. And no, it's okay, it's right, it's useful to put yourself first on the people-pleasing list. 
Don't let your critical voice team up with your people pleaser and scare you. Uh oh, nobody's going to like me then. Uh oh, I'm only going to take care of myself. This is the kind of selfishness that people warn you about when you go to therapy. You'll get more selfish. I've even had religious people tell me therapy takes people away from God. And I always think, well, not if it's done right. Often our people pleaser parts are fearful that we will swing all the way to the other side and somehow become cruel, heartless, cold. You are always meant to be on your own people-pleasing list. If you are people-pleasing others while you are displeased, you can learn to do better for yourself. And the real truth that the fear won't let people see is that when you actually tend to yourself, when you put your own oxygen mask on first, then and really only then, can you be so helpful to everyone around you? More helpful than if you don't put that oxygen mask on and you pass out. Then somebody else is tasked with having to take care of you because you were unwilling to take care of yourself. If we all take care of ourselves, if we all put our oxygen masks on first, we will have so much more juice to help the people in our lives right in the moments where they need it, where we want to step up. So journal and meditate on this idea. Sit with yourself. And I mean, sit with yourself and no more, no less. Sit and have a conversation with your deeper parts. Let their answers bubble up from your subconscious. Ask yourself, do I like this for real? What do I like about it? Make a good old-fashioned list. Write the pros, write the cons. What don't you like about it? Why do I like this? What would it mean about me if I didn't like doing this, if I didn't do this? Does anything light me up about this? Is that enough to be lit up? These are answers that only you can answer deeply with yourself. If you're not driving around, I invite you to practice with me right now. Hand on the belly. Hand on the heart is my favorite. Taking a deep breath and closing your eyes and asking yourself whatever you need to ask yourself in this realm. To get to know yourself, you have to do like you would do with anybody else. How am I going to get to know a new person in my life if I don't spend time with them? If I don't ask them some questions to get to know them? It's no different with ourselves. It's just that maybe you've been on the planet all these years and never heard anyone say that to you the way I'm saying it to you now. How do we get to know ourselves better? How do I know what I really like? By hanging out with ourselves, by having some conversations. And what I don't mean by that is I don't mean obsessing. I don't mean overthinking. I don't mean bringing desperate energy to, oh my goodness, I better figure out who I am. Getting to know yourself, respecting the energy of what that means. We don't walk up to a new person in our lives and go, uh-oh, I got to get to know you. Tell me about you with desperation. We let it unfold. We have fun. We play a board game together. Or we go get coffee and chit-chat about what's going on in our lives. And the more that we're honest, and we hope other people are honest with us, the more likely it is that we're actually growing intimacy and really getting to know each other. You get to ask yourself the very questions that come up, whatever you wonder about. If you decide in this inquiry and exploration with yourself that there are things that you would like to put down, 
and be done with or take a break from to do an experiment, to see who you are without that behavior, to see who you are without that pattern. What a great experiment. You get to check in not just with your mind, with your gut, with your heart. The critical or anxious part of you isn't the wisdom part. So be mindful about asking your deeper parts, your centered parts, your grounded parts, your wise parts. If you sit down and ask the critical or anxious part, you're going to get a critical or anxious answer. So many sensitive people do this when they're out in the world. Lots of people will say to me, you know, I realized after the fact, I went to share my glorious news with the most critical person in my life that never celebrates with me. I'm like, well, that was an interesting choice. I wonder why you went to them. Sometimes there's denial about how that person shows up. Sometimes that's a hope-driven piece where we hope with the innocence of a sweet little child that we'll cross our fingers, that we'll go to the critical person and they'll finally light up and be excited for us only to go, oh yeah, wow, I have a lot of evidence that they show up like this. Be smart with your own parts that tend to be critical or shaming, or judgmental. You have a lot of power to decide. Remember, you're an adult with agency. Which parts of you you engage? The beauty of being an adult is that you have as much permission as you are willing to give yourself to explore, to say yes, to say no, and to get to know yourself intimately. You get to choose all along the way. You get to have different seasons, different seasons of exploration, different affinities. You get to change. You get to shed your skin and evolve. Most HSPs tell me that what they value most in the world is being seen and heard. In fact, they tend to get triggered if they're, they feel unseen and unheard. Don't miss a very important invitation from yourself to yourself to be the very best person in your life to hear and see you and ultimately to hold yourself. As a little side note for this episode, I want to say to notice that we only question the things that we might think of as bad. Like, oh, I had a lot of responsibility, maybe too much as a kid. I gave the example of some of my abuse. I've never really wondered, wow, do I like Cajun or soul food because I grew up in Louisiana and is that okay? Nope, never wondered about that. Just full on loved it. What we are exposed to definitely shapes us in countless ways, the positive and the negative and everything in between. If you have been shaped into any shape that you aren't fond of, Know that you are malleable and changeable even if you feel like you aren't. Sometimes feelings are liars. That's a place where they will lie. It's one of the greatest freedoms available to us as adults if we only embrace the permission to be and become our true selves in boundless exploration. Self-love is often hidden in self-acceptance. I can accept myself as I am today and it's not or. And I have the freedom and the power to get to know my deep self and shape myself as I see fit, any way I see fit. Be patient, be kind, be compassionate and understanding of yourself and you will know who you are. You will love him or her 
even as you grow and evolve and change. Maybe into exactly who you've always been on the inside. Learning to present a truer self to the outside world. Growing resilience and confidence all the while. Everything is practice and not perfection. We're getting ready for the next group of emotional strength training, 30 days to peace, to move through the course starting on the first of the month. Here are some quick quotes for you from that course from participants last month. Being present and allowing the flow of life to take its course. It's soothing for our nervous system and it makes us feel at ease as we wait for whatever it may be that we're waiting for to fall into place at its divine timing. Here's another. I imagined that I was T-Rex, the king of the forest expressed to myself that my ambition, my dedication, the power within me is a force to be reckoned with and I have the abilities to make my presence known. There's a peace in embracing our personal power, y'all. Here's another. That was fun. I needed this. I had a very high stress, high adrenaline, high anxiety event happen yesterday afternoon, and I've been working all day long at trying to get my body to let go of the tension that it pulled in during that event. I was much more successful at it than I would have been a year ago, but I was and am still holding on to a lot of tension, and this activity helped me to release a lot more of it, exclamation point. I was able to find that inner happy smile, that inner playfulness, that lightness, and to release tension. My dinosaur was fun. Thank you, Nikki. Here's one more. Bringing out the childlike enthusiasm is definitely soothing to our present moment, especially if we have been brain scattered with running thoughts. Emotional strength training, 30 days to peace. These are the exercises where you spend five to 15 minutes, no more. You start your day with them in the morning. These are the exercises to practice to build strength muscles of peace. We can't just think peace. We can't just cross our fingers and hope that we'll talk enough in therapy to all of a sudden have peace wash over us. Peace is a practice, particularly if you come from an environment where you didn't have a lot of natural peace, where that's what was lost. You have every right to do the strength training to gain, to earn, to achieve peace. And when you do, you will also have a muscle memory that makes it easier and easier and easier with every single practice to get back to that peaceful point again. To save 30% by signing up right now, go to emotionalbadass.com slash peace and use the code badass to save 30%. If you are one of our amazing Patreon supporters, find your Patreon code. Always Patreon has the biggest discount that we offer. Light and love and peace. And may all of us know more deeply who we are despite what we've been through and who we are because of it. Light and love. I'll see you right here next time. I am an emotional badass. You are an emotional badass, and together we are where Moxie meets mindful. Light and love, and I'll see you right here next time for a brand new episode. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.